through February 28th, get a choice of offers from Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin, like up to 24 months no payments and no interest, or up to $1,125 off a patio door. Get details at PellaWI.com. Certain restrictions apply. See showroom for details. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. Lots of ground to cover on today's program. Lots of stuff going on. want to start on kind of a down note, though, and it, I will tell you this. It seems like 2022 has been very, very tough on on baby boomer celebrities and, and things of the like, and another passing that was just announced today, P.J. O'Rourke, who has been a guest on this program on a couple occasions over the years and who's one of the most interesting, I think, guys that were out there, a fascinating career. He was a conservative political writer, but with the the sensibilities of, I I think, a hardcore leftist. He had a really interesting career. He he wrote for National Lampoon, um, and matter of fact, he managed National Lampoon when when National Lampoon was a big thing. He, He wrote for Rolling Stone. He wrote for Playboy. He wrote for the Weekly Standard. He wrote for Car and Driver. And and it was really, again, a guy with interesting sensibilities, and he sort of had like the, the Hunter Thompson, this is how it was described, you know, flair for literature, and yet, you know, George Will's wardrobe. Really very interesting guy. You know, he passed away yesterday at the age of 74 from lung cancer. It was kind of, I, I guess it wasn't a surprise in some respects when I saw it was lung cancer, because Every time you would see a picture of P.J. O'Rourke, particularly from his younger days, he'd have a cigarette in his mouth. And you just you just understand that those are choices people make, but it just it, it kills people. So P.J. O'Rourke passed away. But I, I was just thinking about, again, some of the other names and the individuals who passed away in just the, the first, what, six weeks of this year. And, and it's just... Amazing. You know, uh, we, we talked earlier this week over the weekend about the passing of Ivan Reitman, who might not have been necessarily a common name. But if, if you, like I do, love the movie Ghostbusters, he was the producer of that. He was the producer of, of Animal House. He was responsible for a lot of those comedies that we, we loved and we grew up with in the 70s and the 80s. The, the performer Meatloaf passed away this year. Um, Bob Saget passed away in his mid-60s. Peter Bogdanovich, the very, very famous director. Comedian Louis Anderson passed away at the age of 68. Sidney Poitier passed away. And um, just another one, Howard Hesseman, the guy who played you know, Dr. Johnny Fever on that great show in the late 70s, you know, WKRP in Cincinnati. You know, he ended up passing away. And this is, the, the list goes on and on, but those were just, you know, we're already talking about, you know, six weeks into it, you're talking about like nine or ten different high-level people who were, I think, certainly part of the soundtrack or the videography of a lot of us baby boomers' lives. And so, P.J. O'Rourke, again, just a really interesting guy. Like I said, I think he's been on the program a couple times, and, and I know I've, I've had the opportunity to meet him a couple times, and he was just he was just one of these sort of interesting political satirists, and he, he never. One of the things I always appreciated about P.G.O. Rourke and his writings and stuff is he never, 
he never took himself too seriously. Sometimes you get into those situations where you have the these people who you know write these magazine articles or have radio shows or TV shows, and, and they take themselves way too seriously. P.J. O'Rourke was never that guy. I mean, I like, I mean, some of his favorite quotations. Democrats are the party that says government will make you smarter, taller, richer, and remove the crabgrass on your lawn. Republicans are the party that says government doesn't work, and then they get elected and prove it. I always thought that was pretty good. Um, one of his lines was, advice for gentlemen. Just like my advice is, nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 o'clock in the morning. His advice was, a hat should be taken off when you greet a lady and left off for the rest of your life. Nothing looks more stupid than a hat. I don't, some people might uh, disagree, but, you know, there, but I think there's a point there. Um, although this is a conservative book, he explained in one of the opening pages to her book, it is not informed by any very elaborate political theory. I have only one firm belief about the American political system, and that is God is a Republican and Santa Claus is a Democrat. Uh, that, again, it, it was all sorts of stuff like that. And uh, got to love P.J. O'Rourke, and he will definitely, definitely be missed. Okay, lots of ground to cover. We're going to be talking about the Milwaukee mayoral election in just a couple moments. But first... An announcement today from Summerfest. Now, actually, it's really like two announcements. One is that 77-year-old Rod Stewart will be returning and will be performing at the amphitheater. He um, he hasn't been back. Gosh, I think it's been, um, he, let's see, 2012, he was at the Bradley Center with Stevie Nicks. But he's going to be back performing. Now, no, no knock on Rod Stewart, but I saw him in Las Vegas a couple of years ago, and with all due respect, it was rocky. Now, at the time, he said he was having some vocal problems, and he was in the, he'd been in the desert and the dry air and all that sort of stuff. But it was it was kind of rocky, and that was a couple of years ago. So I, but Rod Stewart's coming back. Got to give him, got to give him credit. And I, I will say this: as rocky as the performance was, it was still worth the price of admission to see during the encore when he he sings Maggie May, and uh, which is of course I think one of, if not the greatest rock and roll song ever. And he he and the band go walking through the aisles and stuff. It, that that was worth the price of admission. But it it was it was a rocky show, and I don't know if it was just because of a of a temporary thing with his voice or whether he'd lost it a couple years ago. But but he's coming back, and I'm sure it will be a, a good show. Here's the big announcement though coming from Summerfest, and that is that if you want to go to the Rod Stewart show, or you want to go to any other show at Summerfest. You are not going to be required to wear masks. You are not going to be required to prove that you were vaccinated for COVID-19 and or you're not going to have to show negative test results for entry. Now, you will remember this was very controversial when they put this rule in place last year in their effort to let, let, let's try to have an event after having canceled it in 2020, in 2020 so that they had the requirement. As I said, having gone to a couple of the Summerfest shows, I thought they did a pretty good job with it. I mean, it, it wasn't there, – there weren't – long lines you have the thing up on your phone somebody looks at quickly and they they move you on in so i didn't find it to be incredibly off-putting that they required it but i know that there were a number of people out there who said okay you know we're 
we're not going to come to Summerfest. We're not going to show up if if they have these different requirements in place. And so this year they've announced those requirements are not in place. It's going to be business as usual. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand why Summerfest did this last year, and I defended that decision. But this, in my opinion, is absolutely the right call. I think it will increase attendance. I do not think the public is at risk. I think this is exactly the right move for Summerfest to make. Our number, 855-616-1620. Are they doing the right thing by eliminating any mask requirements, by eliminating having to prove that you're vaccinated, by eliminating having to prove that you have a negative COVID test? Is this the right time to do this? for Summerfest 2022. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Now, the announcement today coming from Summerfest is that Summerfest for Summerfest this year, which is going to be different, it's going to be scheduled over three weeks in June and to early July. They are dropping the requirement that they put in place last year that people had to be vaccinated or that they had to show proof of a negative COVID test. And for children, they were supposed to wear masks. Now, I don't think that that was ever really enforced. Jeff, last year, Summerfest said the performers required masks and proof of vaccine and that they had to follow performers' demands in order to have shows. So whose decision is this really? And will performers cancel now that they have lifted restrictions? Well, my guess is the answer is absolutely uh, performers will not cancel because I don't think Summerfest would be making this call if they thought that these shows are now not going to go on. Jeff, I think they'll definitely sell more tickets. Um, I went to Summerfest last year about seven times. I usually go daily. I thought it was very slow last year. I'm excited to see some crowds back considering the usual time frame as well. Yeah, I think that that's um, it. Jeff, I think it's the right time. Tremendous decision. Finally moving forward and leaving this in the dust. People feel free again. Jeff, I'm fine with this. I went to an indoor concert in Green Bay on Friday. They didn't have any requirements. I only saw two people masking, and I am not patient zero right now. Jeff, of course it's the right call. You can have 100,000 people in a stadium for a college football game or 70,000 for an NFL game. No one wants to wear a mask or has to show a vaccination card, so why would a concert be any different? Right, I, I think... That's the reality. Times have changed. And I understand that there's some people who are still freaked out and will always be COVID conscious. And my guess is there is a certain segment of the population that will never go out in public again without wearing masks, to which that, that's fine. That's your decision you're going to make. But I think the general public has, has spoken. The numbers are down dramatically. And I think it is time to start resuming life. And again, if you, if you, if you're uncomfortable, you know, going out and you're uncomfortable being around people who may not be vaccinated, well, okay, that that's fine. That's a decision that you're going to make. But I think for a lot of these venues now, they recognize that it's time to open this up. Jeff, I think Summerfest looked at their disastrous attendance last year, and now the science miraculously changed. No, I don't think it was that. I think that Summerfest was trying to figure out a way how to have the festival when the pandemic was still 
raging at the time, and, and this was the compromise they had, and not to mention that Summerfest was getting a lot of pressure from the different performers. Not all the performers, but many of them, the policy was, unless unless there's this vaccination policy, we're not going to perform, and what that required of Summerfest, they just were at a point where they couldn't say, okay, we're not going to implement this policy, and then all of a sudden a couple of the big main stage acts pull out. They, they couldn't afford to have that happen. This this is now moved on. Jeff, is Summerfest still later in the year? If so, I think it might be premature. Who knows what it'll be like come that time, but I guess they can change if they need it. Yeah, I, I guess they can always reinstitute this sort of policy. But I, I was arguing this the other day. The truth of the matter is, and some people don't like this uncomfortable truth, but I, I think right now you, you look and what do they say, depending on where you are in particular, about 70% of the population is vaccinated, slightly less than that are, are vaccinated and boosted. But, but the rest of the people who've decided they're not going to get vaccinated, they're dug in. They are not going to get vaccinated. Now, as a result of that, you know, they run risks. If you still get COVID, your chances of dying, your chances of being hospitalized, much, much greater if you are not vaccinated. But that's the risk that you end up taking. For people who are vaccinated and or boosted, and if you've had it, put all those things together, and the chance that you're going to get very, very ill is is very, very remote. So I think we're now at a point where people are getting ready to go back and they're going to live their lives understanding that there is going to be a risk. And if you are unvaccinated, you're taking a risk of, of bad conduct, of a bad outcome if you end up having to get sick. If you are, of course, vaccinated and boosted and all that stuff, even if you get COVID again, it's going to be extremely mild. So your risk of going out in public is not that great. Jeff, so what happens? happens if we get with her hit with a surge before then well i guess if there's some monster surge you know you can always roll things back nothing says that they can't reinstitute it but at the same time now especially with these new variants we also know that the, the vaccinations aren't necessarily that effective in stopping you from getting the new variant it's effective in stopping you from getting very sick from the new variant so uh, again the, the question becomes at what point in time do we just say it is what it is? We'd like as many people as possible to get vaccinated, but we're going to have to just get back in this. Now, some people are saying it seems like it's too early to announce this. No, I, I think it's time to let people start planning, and I think this is absolutely the right call to make, and some people aren't going to be happy about it, but my guess is a lot of those people that aren't happy about it and feel uncomfortable with it, they probably, vaccinated or not, weren't comfortable going into crowds and are, are going to make that decision that they're going to stay out of restaurants and they're going to stay out of bars and they're going to stay out of crowds for a while. For Summerfest, I think this is absolutely the right call, and to the extent the decision that they made, which was a decision I think they had to make last fall, did suppress attendance, well, now you've removed that particular barrier, and I think that's good. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. And lest you think that Summerfest is somehow going rogue. Oh, this is this irresponsible decision to drop the vaccine requirements and the masking rules. This is now where we are in this country. I'll give you the best example of it. The happiest place in the world 
Disneyland and Disney World, they announced yesterday that starting Thursday, they are dropping mask requirements for vaccinated guests. And by the way, they don't prove, they're not requiring proof of vaccination to enter their parks. So it's, again, it's back on the honor system. But um, for, well, I guess since they, you know, reopened in um, 2020, and then that's when Walt Disney World opened up and Disneyland reopened April in April of 2021. They had indoor mask requirements, et cetera, et cetera. They have now decided they are waiving that. So it's essentially as close to back to normal as you can get. I'm also being told by a couple of our listeners that, you know, a couple of the other big festivals, Coachella, for example, they've announced that they are dropping their vaccination mask requirements, et cetera, et cetera. So I understand that there's some people out there who, who might think that this is all too soon and might think that, oh, my gosh, we have to continue doing it. But I, I think it's very, very clear. UW-Madison dropping its mask requirement, I think, by, by March. It, it's very, very clear that the public as I think sort of spoken, the COVID numbers are starting to go down. The vaccination impact has taken over. The pressure on the hospitals has eased. So regardless of whether you believe these were appropriate at the time, I think it's just a simple point, number one, where people just aren't going to put up with it anymore. And number two, people are, in fact, ready to move on. And if you follow the science and you follow the numbers, the justifications just aren't there. Here's here's the remaining question. At least so far, the President of the United States, and I've mentioned this before, continues, even though mask requirements are dropping all over, he continues to keep in place the requirement that when you walk through an airport, not just when you get on the airplane, but when you walk through an airport, you have to wear a mask, which raises the question, I don't know, if you can sit with 25,000 people at at a basketball game, you know, cheering and you don't have to wear a mask. What What is the purpose of making people wear masks as they walk through an airport? And also, what's the really what's the purpose of making them wear masks when they get on airplanes where you've got the recirculated air and things like that? If you want to do it, that's fine. But I think, you know, Joe Biden's ending up being one of the last holdouts when it comes to mask mandates and how long that lasts. Who knows? Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Wondering what 2022 will have in store? Well, join WTMJ tomorrow, February 17th, for a day-long broadcast on the topics that impact your everyday life. Politics, the economy, health, and more. Big issues from big names on the biggest stick in the state. It's WTMJ 2022 taking place tomorrow, Thursday, February 17th, from 9 in the morning to 6 p.m., presented by Annex Wealth Management and sponsored by the Bartolotta Restaurants. Find more information at WTMJ.com. All right. Uh, the attendance, or at least the, the, the voter turnout, was pathetic. No other way to describe it. But the results, well, I think if you go back and you listen to a tape of my show from about a week or so ago, it, it, they kind of tracked where I thought this was going to go. The two candidates that come out of the primary election, the acting mayor, Cavalier Johnson, and Alderman Bob Donovan. Um, interestingly enough, and we're going to get into this in just a minute. If you don't think that there's an agenda by some of the media outlets, I sent out sent out a tweet about this um, yesterday. If you pick up the front page of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the print edition, well, uh, the, the headline is, Former Alderman Bob Donovan declares he is runner-up. 
and I thought, what an odd way to present this. Not Bob Donovan is the runner-up, not Cavalier Johnson and Bob Donovan advance. Bob Donovan says he's the runner-up. Well, I mean, I, I would have a fact check for the headline writers at the paper. Donovan got almost 6,000 more votes than the third and fourth place finishers. In other words, the headline should have been Johnson and Donovan advanced to general election, but instead it's, well, Donovan claims he's going to do this. Well, Donovan claims he's going to do it because Donovan did, in fact, do it. It was just, it's a peculiarly written headline. And now you're getting tweets, for example, they're, you know, one of their columnists, and I said, it's not, it's not inaccurate, but Dan Bice is sending out tweets that essentially, if if you just if you look at the approach that apparently the media in this ta- this community is taking, Bob Donovan might as well just not campaign because he's got no chance to win. You now Bice sends out a tweet saying former Bob Don Alderman Bob Donovan is really up against it. It's hard to see how he gets more than thirty percent in the Milwaukee mayoral general election unless there is a massive influx of new conservative voters. He repeats. In 2016, former Alderman Bob Donovan finished second in the mayoral primary with 32% of the vote. In the general, he didn't fare as well, losing 70% to Tom Barrett to 30% for Donovan. Are we headed for a replay of that six years later? So you can tell that the tone in the media is Donovan declares he's runner-up. Donovan only got 32% of the vote running against Barrett. And, and you can just see that the tone of this is that, well, well, Donovan's Donovan's got no chance. Now, if you look at the makeup of, of who got votes, it, it's very, very clear that Milwaukee voters rejected the, the left-wing candidates. Lena Taylor, Marina Dmitrievic, both with lots of name recognition and both having run for office lots and lots of times, they, they each pulled in less than 8,000 votes compared to Donovan's 13,700 votes. So, you know, the, the liberal candidates really didn't take off. Ernell Lucas, who is the Milwaukee County Sheriff, who ran what I thought was a dreadful campaign. Just, I I mean, if in an, in an era and a year where crime is clearly the number one issue for voters, you know, Ernell Lucas was just pretty much non-existent on this. Now, part of the problem was, as county sheriff, he was very, very closely aligned to John Chisholm. He hired John Chisholm's then 20-year-old son for an $84,000-a-year job at, at the sheriff's department, the same thing that you, you pay captains. That was controversial. Chisholm endorsed him, helped him get elected in the first place. So it was very, very difficult for Anel Lucas to make the obvious point that you know a lot of the problems that you have in the city of Milwaukee with crime are traced back to John Chisholm and his catch-and-release problems. But whatever... Ernell Lucas's campaign just never took off at all, and he came in a very dismal fifth place. Then you had a couple of the other candidates who really had no chance at, at all, but appreciate them getting into the race. So you've got it now, Cavalier Johnson and Bob Donovan. Cavalier Johnson, at least on the campaign trail, has been talking on issues of crime like he means business, as opposed to the, oh, we need more social service spending and we need more midnight basketball and, and things like that. Cavalier Johnson is saying a lot of the right things. And Bob Donovan, of course, has a record of you know being, while he's not a Republican, he's the closest thing to a conservative that you're going to find 
with perhaps one or two exceptions, if you look at the Milwaukee Common Council either now or in its last couple iterations. But it's true that, that Donovan, I mean, he's run for mayor once. He got drubbed by Tom Barrett. And so the general thinking is, okay, he's got no chance to win this particular one. Cavalier Johnson is the new generation of people. He's um, uh, He would be the first elected black mayor already. I think uh, Lena Taylor has endorsed him because I think one of the things that she ended up saying was that, well, I, I, I want to I want to see a black mayor. So, you know, you've got that issue as well. And you've got, I think, the mainstream media that's just trying to write Donovan off. So let's tee this up. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do we even need to hold an election? I, I mean, is is it just... Is it just okay, Donovan? He got he got his twenty two percent of the vote yesterday. Um, he was dramatically behind Cavalier Johnson. He he might pick up you know a, a, a little bit of the vote, but in twenty twenty two, is the Donovan campaign dead in the water? Does he have any chance at all of winning? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My answer is yeah. He he has a chance. And for people who write, and I'm not predicting he's going to win because I, I do think he's got an uphill battle because he's the political outsider. Chris Abley, the former county executive, is putting a ton, a ton of money into trying to elect Cavalier Johnson. So I, I understand that there's a lot of headwind. But is this election over? Sorry, I, I don't buy into the idea that the pundits are out there that we don't even need to have an election because it's going to be Cavalier Johnson as in a walkway. Might be, but I don't think you can say that six weeks before the election. What do you think? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Now, now look, don't, don't misunderstand me. I, I think, you know, if... Cavalier Johnson is the clear favorite to be the next mayor of the city of Milwaukee. He's got a ton of money behind him, lots of money from Chris Abley, etc. So that gives him that. He's got the power of being the acting mayor. Let, let's understand that he's also, I mean, there, there is this appeal. I think that some people are going to have it. He will be the, if he's elected, the first elected black mayor. So you've got that appeal. And he at least, unlike some of the candidates, he's at least talking about crime, showing that he appears to recognize that, that there is a crime problem in the city of Milwaukee. Whether he's willing to take the steps to deal with that is a different question. On the flip side, you, you've got Alderman Bob Donovan, former Alderman, who's been around forever, who is, like I say, the closest thing to a conservative that you're going to find on this common council or in any common council in Milwaukee over the last decade or two. But but Donovan's been around. He's underfunded, but he's going to be hitting the crime issue hard. So why do I think that there's going to be a chance, at least, that this might be closer than what a lot of the, the media elites are predicting? And it's because this isn't Donovan and Barrett. And this isn't a number of years ago. This is 2022, where crime is the dominant issue in Milwaukee, where you have homicides that are just off the board, where you have 25 to 30 cars that are stolen every day, where the reality is the city, in many respects, is not safe. And I think that the question's going to be, 
which candidate is going to be able to appeal to people who, who want who, who want safety on, on their streets. And if I were advising Bob Donovan, and I'm not, uh, that would be that's what the campaign would be all about because that's what his background shows. Now, is that enough to get to 50% of the vote plus one? I don't know. I concede that it's uphill. But for all this sniffing, well, I don't see any way that he can get more than 30% of the vote. I, I don't know. I don't think people are necessarily understanding where the electorate might be in 2022. 855-616-1620. Let's start with uh, John in Burlington. John, you're on WTMJ. Jeff, thank you very much. Um, yes, sir. As I uh, talk to the screener, I've been a Milwaukee resident all my life, only recently moved out of the city. Um, conservative or liberal, notwithstanding, I, I think Donovan is the best man for the job. He's been in the city. He's all about the city. He knows the ins and outs of the city. He's, he's played the game, so to speak. And, I mean, I'll wrap this up real quick. I just think he's the best man for the job. He knows what to do and how to do it and how to get things done. He's a, he's a seasoned he person. Do you think he can win? I think he should. He he can win. He can't. Of course, anybody can win. I think he should, though. Yeah. I'm, unfortunately, I, I think I think the younger fella is is going to be touted as the flavor of the month. And pardon my saying, maybe the Obama effect is, is going to have a little sway well, in it. Well, but no, it was. I think at the end of the bad, day, Donovan is the better man for the job. Well, thank, thanks for calling. I appreciate. It. I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't call it the Obama effect, but I mean, there is there. there look, I mean, Milwaukee has never had an elected black mayor. Marvin Pratt was the mayor for the acting mayor for a while. But I mean I appreciate that 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 is that is an appeal. I don't wouldn't necessarily call it the Obama effect, but but that's a, an appeal. I know that there's a lot of voters who would say, "Hey, everything being equal, you know, we'd love to see, you know, in this case a black man being the, you know, being the next mayor." And, and that that is a valid observation that's there. I mean, like I say Lena Taylor has already touted him. I think that was I think that was part of a reason for endorsing him. One of the many reasons. In addition, there's no question that Donovan is more conservative than Cavalier Johnson is. So you do have the, the, the liberal candidates, the Marina Dmitrievics and the um, Lena Taylors. Their voters, to the extent they come back and vote again, they're more likely, I think, to vote for Cavalier Johnson, who is certainly more liberal than Bob Donovan. So I, I'm not arguing that it's not an uphill battle for Donovan. But I, I will say this. I think he's going to get more than 30 or 32 percent of the vote. I think this is if, depending on how the campaign plays out, and that's always the big if, depending on how the campaign plays out, I think he is going to be competitive. Um, if he doesn't have money to run ads, to get on radio and TV, and if you have this dismissive attitude by, like I say, some of the media elites that are out there, I, I mean, I, I don't know whether that's going to take off. But again, Donovan's the guy that's got the credentials on on crime. And if that is his message, I think it's going to resonate with some voters. Is it enough? Well, that's, that's of course, a different story. Um, 855-616-1620. Jennifer in Hartford. Jennifer, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say um, if uh, I would, if I had a chance to talk to Bob Donovan, I would ask him why he had David Clark do his commercials or endorse him. Um, with David Clark's reputation as uh, being kind of out there, uh, you know, Trump supporter, uh, kind of outrageous, 
that to appeal to the Milwaukee citizen, average citizen, um, I can't imagine that that is a great move for him. But it worked. It worked. He, he, he finished second by a, a huge margin in the primary. Now, admittedly, he finished second, but, but he beat other people who were equally as well-known. So, I mean, obviously, obviously that commercial and the, the endorsements worked with a certain segment of the electorate, at least in the primary. I, to me, I just was, I was shocked to hear the commercial. I mm-hmm. didn't think anybody was talking about David Clark anymore. And he has, you know, such a horrible um, reputation that I was really surprised that anyone would want his endorsement, that um, out of all the people you could pick, you would look for anyone else but him. And I don't, I don't think I mean he may have gotten you know thirty percent of the vote, but I don't think he's going to win with David Clark's endorsement. I don't okay. think that that's very helpful at all. Well, Jennifer, thanks for the call. I mean, well, look, I I, I guess there, there's two things. First of all. First, the first battle you always have in a contested primary is to get out of the primary. That, that's why, that's why. What if you look at primaries, Democrat or Republican? What trip typically happens is that Democrats run to the left to because that that's where like a lot of the the, the voting base is to get out of a primary. Then in the general election, they move to the center. Republicans tend to run to the right and move to the center. Now this is this is a nonpartisan sort of thing. I agree with the premise that for Donovan to win, he needs to broaden the base beyond the you know X percentage of the people who you know who you know support David Clark in the city of Milwaukee, which is that the city of Milwaukee is an overwhelmingly Democrat you know area. So you you have to kind of broaden the base, I guess. I, I'm not going to criticize the strategy in the primary because it worked. I, I mean, it, it ended up working. Do, do you need more than that 22% to win? Yet, Yes, you do. And so that's why I think you have to reach out. But at the same time, I'm not sure it's as much personalities as it is issues. And, and that's what this issue, this, this campaign is going to come down to. Uh, again, there, there's all sorts of issues, significant issues facing the, the city of Milwaukee. But, you know, Talking about crime, 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 crime. Just like Bill Clinton in 1994, the message was, it's the economy, stupid. Well, if I were running for mayor in the city of Milwaukee in 2022, that note would be, it's crime, stupid. And everything you should be talking about concentrates in that. I understand that you talk about other issues, but I'm I'm telling you, that's got to be the focus of this. And, And I think what you need to do is, from both candidates, you need to have more than just some of these general platitudes about this. You need to have, all right, be specific. If I were Donovan, I I would be coming out like yesterday with specific proposals. This is what I am going to urge the Common Council to do. If I am elected day two, I'm heading out to Madison, and I want to meet with the legislature, legislative leaders, and I want to meet with the governor, and I want to say this is the city's, this, this is the state's largest city, and we've got a mess when it comes to crime, and we need we need tighter laws on this, and, and maybe we need mandatory minimum sentencing, and we need more money to hire you know more judges so we don't have these delays. But but that's what you want. Be specific. Get people's attention. And can it get you to 50% of the vote plus one? I, I don't know because it's uphill. But for all this dismissive poo-pooing, oh, there's no way Donovan gets more than 30% of the vote, maybe, 
but I think it's going to be closer than that. Of course, a lot can happen over the next six weeks, but right now it's Bob Donovan, it's Cavalier Johnson, it's on, and we'll be around to talk about it. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. How can I say this? Let's see. Why don't I just say what I'm thinking? There are a group of people in Franklin who have collectively lost their minds. I, you know, I have never seen a, and and it course it corresponds to some people in the city of Milwaukee who have also lost their minds as well. What do we hear so much nowadays? We hear that we we need jobs and we need good, well-paying, family-supporting jobs. That's what drives communities. And then we need to find people that can work at, at these jobs. Which brings me to a wonderful local employer called Strauss Brands. And if Strauss Brands is a meat processor, you know, opponents will say it's a slaughterhouse as they, they try to, like, go back and, like, uh, think about the the book that you might have read in high school, the 1920 book, you know, about slaughterhouses, the, the jungle and things like that. that okay, it, it is a modern meat processing plant. Now, now, here's the history of this before we open up the phone lines. Um, Strauss Brands has been processing meat for years and years and years. They have a facility in Franklin right now. If you drive down to that facility, and I have done this on multiple occasions over the last couple of years, you cannot tell it is a meat processing facility. It, it might as well be an Amazon distribution. It might as well be any other sort of big industrial thing. It, it might be it might as well be Amazon or an IKEA storage thing or whatever. You cannot tell from the outside in any way, shape or form that it is a meat processing facility. This isn't again like you know the slaughterhouses in Chicago in nineteen twenty. Strauss Brands, which is a very, very good corporate citizen and produces a very good product they have outgrown their facility. So you will remember, gosh, what was it? It was in at the end of 2019 into 2020. What Strauss Brands wanted to do is they wanted to relocate their facility from Franklin into the, the Century City area, which is um, kind of a war zone right now on, on, on Capitol Drive. And, and they wanted to be, they wanted to move in this business park, um, and the, the idea was we're, we're going to move our facility here and we're going to provide all these great jobs. The jobs that they have, um, on average, fit, on average, $54,000 a year and benefits on top of that. So this, this is a good employer. It is the type of employer that you would want to have in any sort of community, but especially in the city of Milwaukee. Well, you will remember back then it became controversial because you have some people who said, oh, we don't want this. We don't want these jobs here because it's a slaughterhouse. It's going to be terrible. It's going to hurt property values, which is going to hurt property values in that particular area. So in the face of opposition, including from the aldermen, much, much to the frustration of then-Mayor Tom Barrett and his business development people, Strauss Brand said, fine, life is too short. 
we we don't need if you don't want us here if you don't want um i think right now they have 150 jobs and the plan was they were going to be adding at least another 110 so you're talking about 260 plus jobs plus more to come once they build the bigger facility and strauss took the position to the city of milwaukee fine if you don't want us we're we're not going to bang our heads against the wall we'll find somewhere else which takes them back to franklin so what they did is they found a, a larger place in in franklin and they want to build their their new facility there same sort of deal if you look at this this is i'm reading the descriptions of this this is it's an incredibly modern meat processing plant they're going to have a pre-treatment facility that's going to be installed to remove any pollutants in the water before it goes into the sewer system truck traffic they say truck traffic is not going to be any greater than it is now They've got scrubbers, ozone systems, exhaust fans to mitigate any odor issues. Um, to the extent that they're, you know, processing beef, cattle, or veal, they're unloaded inside the facility, so it's not like they're even stored outside. Like I said, you go down to the Strauss facility now, and you won't know that it is a meat processing facility. That that's just how it works. But of course, you've got the NIMBYs that are out there who come in and say, "Well, you know, I don't want this. It's a slaughterhouse. This is going to be terrible. It's going to hurt our property values." Now, I, I bring this up because the battle is is not going away. You've got a Milwaukee County judge in the face of a lawsuit that's being funded by this group called Franklin Community Advocates, which is now apparently that this new plant, it continues to be on, on hold. The city has been ordered to hold a, another hearing, yet another hearing on the development, and you've got, again, all the NIMBYs that are out there saying, well, you know, we're concerned that this is going to diminish, you know, property values. You know, we're going to concern that this um, it might be one of these situations where you know people will will decide that they don't want to move into this particular area. You're talking about 250 really good, well-paying jobs for a business that really, even though you, you say it's a meat processing facility, like I say, you wouldn't know that it's any different than an Amazon, you know, real, an Amazon distribution warehouse. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. That, and it is interesting to me how, how you charge the language because all the opponents, all the NIMBYs down in Franklin, what they're doing is they're saying, well, you put a slaughterhouse in a residential area, of course it's going to impact uh, property values. Well, it's, it's you say, oh, we're, we're putting a meat processing plant in, a modern meat processing plant. It's got a different connotation. But the NIMBYs that want to kill this and kill all those jobs and make it difficult, I mean, essentially to, to force a, a great company out, I guess, of Franklin, taking that off the property tax base, they use the charge terms like slaughterhouse and things like that in an effort to try to whip up opposition to this. All right, let's open up the phone lines. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line i just there I, I look at a situation like this and i say look you you've got something it's an industrial area this is an industry you already know what the business's history is because like i say if you go down there you would never know it's a meat processing plant is there any reason at all to turn up the nose and say, okay, we don't want Strauss here. You know, take your 150 jobs plus your other 110 good, 
high-paying, family-supporting jobs and send them somewhere else? Or is this just this, this paranoia and this panic, but it's a slaughterhouse. We don't want it here. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will tell you this. Communities should be falling all over themselves in trying to attract businesses like Strauss. And the barriers that are being put up by some of the people in Franklin who have just simply decided we're going to say no in this, what I believe is an unthinking sort of fashion. Got to be incredibly frustrating. Where are we going to get good jobs? Where are we going to get economic development? Where are we going to get a good tax base for a community if we simply say no, no, no? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I've worked inside the Strauss facility in Franklin. It is very, very clean inside and out. I applaud Strauss for the good jobs they bring to our community. The people that are making a stink about the new facility probably also complain about rising lamb meat prices. No, the people that complain about this have never been in the facility. The people have an agenda, and it's actually... One of, you know, one of our texters kind of alludes to something like that. And, and the, the point is, says, I'm a vegetarian. And, you know, as a vegetarian, I don't want to live by a meat processing facility. Wonderful. Oh, oh that, that's great. So you choose not to eat meat. So your idea is a community should deny a business a right to produce something that the vast majority of people do eat. And th- but I think there, there is some of that, that that's out there. You know, one of our texters says, hey, you got to understand what's going on in Franklin right now. Franklin has become a Milwaukee County suburb of many higher young paid professionals, many younger high paid professionals. I suspect they are applying NIMBY approach, wanting only shopping and entertainment venues in their community and not industry or anything else that would be in their mind nuisance businesses. Well, yeah, look, it, it, it's great to have bars and restaurants and places to go and movie theaters and things like that, but you also need industry. The area is zoned for industrial. And I guess my point about all this is that this idea, and again, it's the charged way you see this discussion. It's a slaughterhouse. Well, like I say, take the time to go down there, and you're you're not going to know that it's a meat processing facility. You're just not going to be able to flat out tell, but yet the NIMBYs are out there arguing this. Jeff, I think it's shockingly ridiculous that Milwaukee turned them down, and now Franklin government is being ridiculous too, inept government at its finest. Well, right now, this isn't necessarily government. Government voted to go ahead. What you had is you had a, a number of, of a community group, and I don't know the constant, I don't know how many people are people in the community itself versus people from outside the community who, again, like one of our texters, just is a vegetarian and, and doesn't like the concept that, hey, we're, we're processing meat there, so I, I don't like meat, so I don't think anybody else should be able to to have meat. Well, well, good luck, good luck with that. And again, you're, you know, I was pulling out the numbers of this just so people understand the raw numbers of what is involved in this expansion, and that—that's what it is. They're just—they've outgrown where they are they are preparing planning to invest 73 million dollars into the community by building this facility so think about just for a second what that means and i guess like 60 million or so is in the construction of the new facility and the rest is equipment but think about what that means just beyond beyond the 250 
jobs that pay $54,000 a year on average. Think of what a project like that means for a community as far as building. It means you're, you're going to have you know, workers that are going to be doing all, you're going to have electricians, and you're going to have plumbers, and you're going to have building contractors, and you're going to have roofers, and you're going to have all these people that are coming in, and they are, that Strauss is going to be paying. It's money that's going to be put back into the economy, and you know that a lot of those people, those companies are going to be spending some of that money in the the Franklin area, and yet we turn up our nose and say, well, no, we, we don't want that because we're concerned about the smells. Well, drive past the current one. There's no smells. We're concerned that it's going to, you know, increase the traffic. Well, they say there's not going to be more trucks that are there. Um, Jeff, um, let's see. You're absolutely right. I grew up on a farm. Our beef cattle were taken to a facility in Waukesha. It was very clean. There was never an odor. I'm sure this company is being run the same way. Any city would be lucky to have a business like that. Jeff, would you personally welcome this processing plant in your neighborhood? All right, here's the deal. First of all, my neighborhood where I live is not zoned industrial. Okay, so that, it's not zoned industrial. I don't live in an industrial neighborhood. But to having, but having said that, if there was an area that was zoned industrial down the road from me, I would have no problem at all with a state-of-the-art meat processing plant. Any different matter of fact, I'd rather have something like that, well, than a number of other businesses, for example, that that are going to create like like hotels or stuff like that. I, I, yeah, if the area is zoned for industrial and you live by an industrial area, yeah, they're, they're, the meat processing plant is no different. Now, I understand that the folks who don't like meat don't want to think about that. I understand that the folks who don't want to see development growth uh, don't like that. But then explain to me where these jobs are going to come from. You know, everybody complains, legitimately so, that we need more good, high-paying jobs. Well, okay, these are good family-supporting, high-paying jobs, or at least good, solid, middle-class jobs. One of our texters says you can't fix stupid. Well, I think there is an element of um, that. No, there's just no question about it. Jeff, maybe they should just move up to the Fox River Valley. We would love to have them. Well, I think a lot of places would love to have them, and I think that's part of the issues. And I understand people are saying, "Oh, there's going to be a little, there's going to be more traffic and stuff." I do think people need to get over themselves, and that's that's just the bottom line of this. But here's the bottom line: at some point in time, you know, when you have the, these companies like like the Strauss Brands of the world. They're going to do business somewhere because I'm sorry to all the vegetarians out there, to all the people who hate meat. You know, a lot of us are still going to eat our hamburgers and steaks and our chicken, and we're not going to feel guilty about it. That's just kind of the reality. So they're going to go somewhere. Is your community better off? If Strauss were to say, you know, we've been in Franklin for years and years and years. We've had a really good relationship with with the community. We've been a really good corporate citizen. But if they don't want us, fine. We'll take our 250 jobs. We'll take our $73 million. And you know what? We'll, we'll locate further down the road. We'll go to Kenosha. We'll go to Racine. We'll go somewhere else, and, and we'll spend the money there, and we'll leave Franklin. And does that make Franklin a better place to live? 
well, okay, get ready when you know your tax base goes down and you become less desirable as a place to live because, again, you don't have as many businesses that you're attracting. Again, it, and look, I, I, I have no... I have no, I don't have a horse in the race when it comes to, you know, where Strauss goes. It's just, we fight so hard to get good, well-paying jobs. And you have a good corporate citizen and a great company that is trying to do the right thing, and all they get is resistance. And so, if they decide to Franklin, to tell Franklin to go take a jump in the lake, that that's fine. Will Franklin be better? Eh, I kind of doubt that. Back with more in just a minute. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Here's a text. Jeff, I have lived across from Strauss for 25 years. You would never know it is a meat processor. You need to understand this is a small group of Franklin residents that are fighting it. The larger population welcomes it with open arms. Huh. Um, that's it. Jeff, there's a place conveniently located on the interstate called Janesville that would certainly welcome that business, the $264,000 a year jobs and the $73 million investment. Jeff, maybe Cavalier Johnson, the acting mayor, can lure Strauss back to Century City. Well, I don't know about Century City because that was always going to be a reach. But, you know, th- this is sort of an interesting issue. I-, I talk about the mayor's race in Milwaukee being being crime, 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 crime. But I, I do think there's a couple other sidelight issues, and, and that's kind of an interesting one. Could you see a Bob Donovan or a Cavalier Johnson going, you know what, one of the things I want to do is I want to lure good-paying jobs here. This was a huge mistake to let this company go, and the first thing or one of the first things I'm going to do as mayor is I'm going to reach out. I'm going to set up an interview. I want to have lunch or breakfast or dinner or wherever I with you know the people that run Strauss Brands, and I want to see if we can possibly convince them to bring this project back to the city of Milwaukee. That will be a priority number one. Wouldn't it be refreshing to hear somebody say that? Now, I'm not holding my breath on that, but again, if Franklin doesn't want it, if the NIMBYs down there want to turn up their nose, at some point in time, I think there's going to be other suitors for the company. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. All right, let me back into this topic because it, it, it shows how things have changed over the years. When I was in high school at Nicolay High School back in the day, believe it or not, they allowed you to smoke in school, not in class, but if you had permission from your parents, they had, and I've told this, they, they had various designated areas in the high school where you could go and smoke, like outdoor courtyards, and then there were a couple bathrooms that were designated as smoking areas. I, I, I've, I've, I've never, I'm not going to say I've never had a cigarette, but I, I've never been a, a smoker. And I, I always remember in high school walking into, like, the, the men's room, boys' room, and there would be... There would be people sitting cross-legged on the floor of the bathroom, eating their lunch out of like a paper bag. You know, so they, they brought their lunch and having a cigarette. And I can remember as I'm kind of stepping over them to go do my business, I remember thinking, I, I don't understand what the allure of is smo- of smoking is. It's so bad that I'm going to sit there and have a cigarette on the floor of a bathroom <laughs> while I'm eating my lunch. So I, I never got it. But that, that shows how times change. You used to be able to do that. Well, nowadays, 
No. Nowadays, we, we don't allow people to smoke in, in schools. And in addition to not allowing them to smoke cigarettes, we don't allow them to, to vape. Now, I don't even go into the discussion of, you know, whether vaping is as bad as smoking cigarettes or not as bad or, or, or whatever or worse. I, it, that's, the bottom line is we, we don't allow people to smoke kids to smoke cigarettes in, college, in high school, and we don't allow them to vape, which brings me to a story. Out of Surring High School, Surring is eh, kind of northwest of Green Bay, small community, um, toward kind of between Green Bay and Shawano uh, about. So here, here's the story as it's reported in both their local paper and the journal Sentinel. Surring High School officials accused of strip searching students. Oconto County prosecutor won't bring charges. So here, here's long story short. Apparently what happens is they have a bunch of kids who have decided that what they're going to do is they're going to bring their vaping materials to school. You're not allowed to vape on school grounds, but the kids don't care. So in violation of the rules, they, they're, bringing, they're bringing their smoking devices to school and they are smoking. All right, so what happens is January 17th and, and 18th, the, the, the school is told that this stuff is going on and they get some information indicating that some of the students at the small school who have brought the, the vaping materials and some these are both like men and women boys and girls so what they decide to do is okay we're going to search the students to see if they have these vaping materials on their person and apparently what happens is some of these kids that have the, the pipes or whatever they will secrete them in their clothing like if you're a girl you you, you stick the, the 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 pipe you, you stick it in your brazier or you you put it down your your pants or, or whatever so what the school decides to do is hey we we, we want to do a search you know because we want to find out if the kids have brought contraband with me so far so what they do is they they identify the boys and the girls and, and they, they separate them, and these are the ones that they, they want to check out. And my understanding is, I don't know that they found vaping materials on all of them, but they found vaping materials on some of them. So that they separate them. And, and just like if you're going through the airport and you set off the metal detector with TSA, um, what happens is you, you, you have a pat-down search. So what they do is, they for the girls, that they have the uh, school superintendent, who's a female, and I think like a school nurse, and for the boys, they I don't know if it's the vice principal or, or whatever. But so it's the men, they separate the boys and girls into different rooms. And then what they do is they do sort of a pat-down search. Um, apparently what happened is students were told to disrobe to their undergarments and then were searched by the, the, the girls, in this case, was searched by the female school superintendent. Um, the students say, well, we, we weren't, we weren't, made to expose ourselves. In other words, we didn't have to take off our bras. We didn't have to take off our panties. But, you know, we, we did have to strip down to our undergarments, and then um, we, we, we were padded. Okay, so that's the deal. Um, the parents find out about this, and they just have a fit. Now, the district attorney's up there saying, well, no, this, we're not issuing criminal charges because this, isn't a, this doesn't fit the definition of of a strip search 
you know, under the law. And the policy that they have there says, you know, no, no strip searches. But they say that's not what this, this was. Um, it, it wasn't like we, we made you get naked and things like that. It was we, we did have you get to your undergarments because we wanted to, to see where stuff was secreted. And as a matter of fact, like I say, they found, they found at least a couple of the cases, they found the, these vaping materials. So the parents find out about this. A couple of kids come home and they say, well, what, guess what happened? I, I had my vaping pipe and uh, they, they, I, I got caught with it, um, but, but they, they searched me. You know, this is what they did. So the parents, and I'm looking at a story in the, the local newspaper from up there, says that many of the parents were upset that they weren't informed that their little darlings were going to be searched in this fashion. They were unhappy that their little darlings were getting an in-school suspension because they had violated the rules, and they are demanding action be taken. How dare the school officials search the kids to determine if they have contraband on them? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, let's... Let's tee this up. And again, I think maybe this shows how parents have changed over the years because if if I had brought contraband to school when I was in high school, let's say like I say, you, you were allowed to you were allowed to smoke. Let, let's say I had a pot pipe or, or, or something. Let's say let's say I had marijuana, all right, stuck in a pot pipe. And I I, I brought it to school and they, they took me into a room, and they patted me down, and they found that pot pipe. And they called my mother and father. I, I have to tell you, Ann and Jack Wagner's concern wouldn't have been, oh, they told you to get into your underwear. They, 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 they made you take off your, your pants, and they got you down into your underwear, and they found the pot pipe that you had stuck in your, your pants or, or whatever. That The concern wouldn't be, gee, they searched you. The concern would be, what were you thinking bringing the contraband to school in the first place? But apparently here, the big concern is not that the kids were violating the rules, but it's that the, it's that the school officials went and searched the kids to find the evidence that they were breaking the rules. 855-616-1620. All right. Are the parents legitimately upset that their kids were searched in this fashion? Whereas maybe the, the problem with the parents in the first place, 855-616-1620, we discuss in a moment. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This week's sponsor for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase presented by Great Midwest Bank is Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Contact them at 920-291-3800 or visit PellaWI.com to learn about the Pella Promise and to set up a free consultation. That's Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Pella now, pay later. A lot of interesting response on this issue. Let's start with Eddie in McGuanago. Eddie, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. I'm concerned about uh, how the students were screened for the search. Uh, I think our Constitution protects us from unreasonable search and seizure, and if I understand it correctly, you have to have some reasonable suspicion or probable cause. So if a student smelled like smoke or was behaving suspiciously, I guess I'm okay with it, but to just randomly screen a grade or a class uh, because well, they didn't randomly screen. No, no, they they didn't they didn't randomly screen. As a matter of fact, my understanding is, I, 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 oh. at least some of, if not most of the kids oh, yeah, that they searched, school. they found the pipes. <laughs> they, they, they did have the contraband. 
Hey, okay. thanks for the call. I mean, I mean, uh, I, I guess I, I just no. I mean, I, I mean, I look. Th- th- this isn't. That this isn't okay. We're getting all the boys together and we're marching them into the gym and we're making them strip down to their underwear. Now th- these were these were targeted searches, and at least as as far as I can tell, I- at least in several of the cases, they did in fact turn up the contraband. Um, Jeff, when uh, so when I was eight years old, I got caught stealing a cigarette. The person that caught me said, "If they wanted a cigarette, all I had to do was ask." Um, I, I just I never understood. I never touched one in my life. Look, look here, and a number of people are saying, "Well, th- this is exactly how we would react." If I found out that my my child w- was searched by a school official, I would be outraged. How dare they do this? To which I, I would ask this question: For everybody who thinks that. What if it was a gun? I mean, what, what if it what if it was a gun? What if the reports were that little fifteen-year-old Jeff has brought a tr- small caliber, small handgun to school and has stuck it in the front of his pants? <laughs> okay, all right. And, and so, at that point in time, would you say, well, well, no, we're we're we're, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do a search. Or, um, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to call Mr. and Mrs. Wagner and we're going to see if we can get hold of them and get them down here. Uh, w- would, would that be the case? Or do you just say, no, we're, we're not going to do anything? If, if, it, if, it was, if it was a different form of contraband, what if, it was, what if it was something that was easily disposable? What if it was heroin, something like that? Hey, we, we think little Jeff is selling heroin. You know, uh, you know, out of the out of the the boys' bathroom on on the second floor, and you know, we we've he's we believe that he's secreted them, you know, by sticking them down his pants, or you know, a little Lola, we we think she's got bags of heroin that she's selling, but she she stuck them in her bra. All right, would, would you say at that point in time that no, we're, we're not going to let you search? Now, some people are saying, well, but but it wasn't a gun. No, it, it wasn't. But I mean, is that is that a difference? Is it some forms of contraband are are okay? That it's you know you you don't get searched if it's well okay if it's a if it's a vaping pipe you you don't get searched, but if it's a gun you do. I mean, if it's if if it's a vaping pipe, you don't get searched. If it's heroin, you you do. I mean, no. I mean, I, I understand it wasn't a gun, but um, to me, that's that's not the question. The question is, you know, should school officials be allowed to do what are eff- effectively pat down searches? It's not like they cause the kids to expose themselves. And for some people who are saying to me, well, I I can't believe these the school officials would see the kids in a state of undress. Does that mean then you're suggesting that the school superintendent get, doesn't? can't walk through, for example, the girls' locker room when they're changing for gym, or the male gym teachers can't walk through the boys' locker room when they're changing for gym. I guess, but the bigger point to me remains, I'm just stunned that the reaction that a lot of these parents have is less about, less about the, the fact that the kids were violating the rules and bringing contraband in, Unless that they were caught violating the rules and bringing contraband in, then it was the fact that they were, um, you know, violating the rules. Um, um, Jeff, what is wrong with these people? I would not want my children going to school with these kids if this is how the parents feel about this behavior. Jeff, I agree with you 99% of the time. This isn't one of the times. If I found out my school strip searched my child, I would have a big problem with this. Well, first of all, it's not a strip search. 
I mean, a strip search is take all your clothes off. That's not what this was. This was, all right, strip down to your undergarments, which is a difference. And, and but, but it's a big difference, at least in the eyes of the law. It's not like the kids were touched. It's not like the administrators were sticking their hands down the boys' pants or down the girls' underwear or things like that or feeling under the bras and stuff like that. It it wasn't, but it was getting the outer layer of clothing off so they could see whether or not there was the the pipe that was stuck in the bra or something like that. And you know what? Apparently that worked because they found a bunch. So when you say strip search, yes, they, they were told to take off their, you know, take off their outer garments, but it wasn't like they were told to get naked or anything like that, and it's not like they were actively fondled or anything. Or does that just, I mean, not... You know, make a difference. Jeff, should a school official want to deal with students taking off their clothes? They should contact law enforcement officials. Vapors do not equate to guns, heroin, like you're implying. Well, okay, then, then, I guess that's, that's the standard then. What, what is appropriate? What type of contraband are we going to say is appropriate to allow a search? And what type of contraband is not appropriate? But again, the larger point to me is the reaction that the parents end up having, which is less upset that their kids are, are violating the school rules and bringing the contraband onto the campus and more upset with the fact that they got caught by the officials and the way it was that the officials caught them, which to me says a lot about the parents and the attitude that, that the parents have. And again, I just when I saw this story, I go back to thinking, huh, you know, if, if this was me in the 70s and my parents got that call, it, the concern wouldn't be, Gee, they, they took you into you know the boys' locker room, and the, the gym teachers had you stripped down the underwear, and they found that pot pipe that was you know stuck in your tidy whities That would not be the concern. The concern would be what were you doing bringing the contraband to school in the first place? But of course, as we talk about a lot on this program, we live in a different world nowadays. And people in Surring are upset. There's not going to be any criminal charges because there's no violation of criminal law. But some people do want the school administrator and the teachers and everybody involved in this fired. Don't know whether that's going to happen or not. But again, this seems to me to be one of these things where the parents are more concerned about protecting bad behavior than they are with you know, dealing with the fact that their kids got suspended for violating school rules. Back with more in just a couple minutes. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Quick reminder, tomorrow is our WTMJ 2022. I'm doing one segment. It's in the, it's going to be in this hour, so 24 hours from now, and it's the economy segment. We're going to be joined by Tim Sheehy from the Milwaukee Metropolitan Association of Commerce. Also, he's with the stadium board as well, so we're going to have some questions about that. Dave Spano from Annex Wealth Management. We're going to be talking about inflation and what's going on in the markets and what the year looks like. And my dear friend Tracy Johnson from the Commercial Association of Realtors. And we're going to talk about the, the local economy and the state economy and, and where the, we're going for the future. going to be a really interesting discussion. So tune in all day, but my segment's going to be from 2 until 3 o'clock tomorrow. This is my favorite 
my favorite text so far of the day. Now, there's another hour, but this is it. In the last segment, I was using the example of, you know, if, if back in when I was at Nicolay High School, when I was at Nicolay High School, if I had taken a marijuana pipe and stuck it down the front of my tidy whities my parents would not have been concerned that the gym teacher, um, you know, made me take off my pants so that they could get the marijuana pipe. It wouldn't have been the search. It would have been the fact that I had the marijuana pipe in the first place. So one of our listeners dances, Jeff, you just told everybody on the biggest stick in the state that you wear tidy whities No, I, I said, no, you got to listen carefully. I did wear tidy whities in the 1970s. No question about that. What, if anything, I wear now, though, remains between me and Mrs. Wagner. So that's 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 just, I'm just saying back when I was a kid, maybe. Whenever I, I just, I always think about the TV show Breaking Bad, you know, and there, there's always, especially in the, the first season, there's always these scenes of, uh, the, the the character the the Walt character um, who's you know cooking meth and he's in the tidy whities and stuff I think it it sort of brought back a revolution for that but no I didn't say I wear them now I did acknowledge that back in the seventies perhaps that's the case all right of course you should do this Here, here's the conversation. We, we talk a lot about the out-of-control crime and the fact that you have people on stupid low bails who are out committing crimes. One of the reasons there are so many people out there, and, and first of all, let's understand, there, there is a philosophy in the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office that has pervaded things since pretty much John Chisholm became the district attorney, and that philosophy is we don't want to lock people up. We want to do everything we can to let people out on the street because we don't want to confine people, and I want to go get awards from all these progressive-thinking district attorneys. And, and now, of course, the chickens are coming home to roost because we're finally starting to see that a lot of people who should be locked up are, in fact, out committing crimes. That problem has been made worse over the last year or two because, as a result of, of the pandemic, the, the, the court system, I don't want to say it shut down, but it pretty much shut down. You know, you had the DA's office, which was essentially closed for in-person things, so cops couldn't go in for their, their conferences with the DA's. Um, you, you had the court system, which was effectively shut down for the longest time. So you can argue whether or not what the court system did, and I include the judges and the court commissioners and the DA's office, did, did they overreact? Was there a way that they could have continued to process cases even in the pandemic environment? My arg- argument would be yes, but that's water under the bridge. But that that has created, that, that has made the problem that was always there, it has made it worse because what happened is criminals knew that they could commit crimes and they, they weren't going to be held. I mean, and you have people that went through the system over and over again because because there, we weren't doing jury trials so that the cases wouldn't be processed. So you'd have these judges that would decide, okay, well, you know, I, I'm not giving this person a jury trial, so I don't want to have them locked up on bail, so I'm going to let them go on some stupid low bail um, while they're awaiting trial that might not happen for a year and a half. So that was the thinking, and of course we've seen where that thinking got us. So the question becomes, we've still got this backlog of cases. What they're saying is, right now, the backlog of felony cases is... um, well, there's 170, listen to this, there's 177 suspected killers 
currently in jail awaiting trial as homicides um, go through the roof. Um, my understanding is, I'm trying to look at the exact number, I think that there's like a 1,700 felony cases that are waiting, awaiting trial. I think 1,700 criminal and 33,000 misdemeanor cases that are stuck in the system. So th- these are, and as a result of this, what you have is a lot of people who've had their cases delayed, so they're, they're, ju- they're just out. And in many cases, or at least some cases, they're out there committing crimes. So the question becomes, what do you do to move this along? Now, in the real world, in, in private industry, now think this through. Let's say you've got a business that has a huge backlog of orders. You run, you run a T-shirt company. And your T-shirts are incredibly popular. Matter of fact, the demand is so great that you can't keep up with it. You know, you're used to running one shift, and that one shift cannot keep up with the production. So, what do you do if if you're the owner of a T-shirt manufacturer? Well, you add a second shift, or you you have the people that are working for you. You have you have them work overtime. You know that that's what you do. You increase your capacity for production. And uh, again, that, that's how you, you deal with the need. Well, in the court system, we haven't done that. So apparently one of the ideas, and this story comes from Channel 12, you know, they're, they're talking to the, the chief judge, who in my opinion has been part of the problem. But one of the things that, that they say is, all right, how about considering something like night court or bringing in reserve, ju- retired judges, reserve judges, why don't why don't we work harder? Let let's extend the hours instead of instead of saying, all right, we're we're going to be open from eight thirty until five. Why don't we run a night court? And, and maybe maybe we we can't have jury trials at night, but maybe what we can do is there, there's all sorts of motions hearings, you know, all this type of stuff to advance the cases. Let's let's do it. Let's I'm not saying work around the clock, but maybe let's work two shifts. We've got this huge backlog of cases, 1,700 criminal cases, 3,000 misdemeanor cases. Let's start working harder. Let's bring in some extra people. Let's get these things processed. Let's clear the backlog. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To me, th- this is the absolute no-brainer, and I guess it's a reflection of of where the problems are that we're not doing this Already now, I, I understand that some of the stuff that happened during the pandemic is beyond control of, of the judges and, and the prosecutors. But but now there, it seems to me there is no reason not to be having court hearings. There's no reason not to be having. And and by the way, like I say, everything's not a jury trial. I mean, many cases are are pleas. You don't need to bring the jurors in or things like that. I mean, if you've got if you've got people that have cut deals and they're getting ready to issue a guilty plea, well, what's wrong with having them do it at seven o'clock? at night what's wrong with running a, a second shift and if that means that you've got to bring in some retired judges or whatever to, to hear this what what's the problem with that don't we have an obligation to get rid of this backlog by the way last time I checked there's all these covid dollars that are that are flowing around all this federal money that's flowing around you know maybe you spend some of this on I don't know give it to the DA's office and allow them to hire you know, temporarily, some more prosecutors to get them in to work these night court shifts. 855 616 Why this isn't happening right now 
makes no sense to me other than, well, we're not sure we want to work that hard. Well, you've got to work that hard to get rid of the backlog, don't you? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Jeff, I'm glad you mentioned Night Court. I thought of this a few months ago when they let the Waukesha killer out. Yeah, this is, I mean, to me, this is an absolute no-brainer. If there is a huge backlog that was in part caused by the pandemic, and this is resulting in dangerous people being turned loose or contributing to that, it, 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 you, you got to move it along. So let, let's let's work longer. All right. I'm not saying that, you know, the existing circuit judges have, you know, heaven knows. Well, I mean, you you can walk there on a Friday afternoon. You can roll a bowling ball through that courthouse and you're not going to hit a judge. But but that that aside, I mean, I'm not saying that I expect them to work 15, 20 hour days, but bring in reserve judges. Start the night court. Even if you can't have jury trials, there's all sorts. You can have you can have evidentiary hearings. You can do all this stuff at night, for example, and, and clear up the days. So you use them for the jury trials that you have to have. Jeff, such a revolutionary idea. Oh, wait, they already had a comedy sitcom for this very thing the only difference is this isn't a joke no it's not brian and kenosha brian you're on wtmj good afternoon hey jeff thanks for taking my call yeah what do you think you there yeah, yeah so uh I had, this, I had a similar similar conversation with uh, a fellow co-worker um he was sitting not really sitting but waiting for trial for months and months on end um, I also have another friend who's now almost going on four years for a trial. Um, and granted, it's, it's going to be a jury trial, but we, we have all this extra money floating around. We have all these other ideas for the healthcare system of bringing in military and bringing in all these extra resources from around the state and the local government. Why can't we utilize, uh, and I'm not sure if it's going to be the perfect situation, but I mean, there is lawyers and everything that work for the military there are people that are looking uh judges and everything sorry not judges uh lawyers and everyone looking for work why can't we make this process go a little bit quicker and you know get these guys you know in and out of these courts instead of you know i mean some of these guys are relatively decent people just waiting to get their their sentence heard and move on with their life Oh, no, thanks for calling. No, so, see, I mean, that, no, you're right. No, that and that's that's a good point. And and look, and you know, you you bring in, you you got a bunch of reserve judges, which are retired judges. You say, okay, this is what we want you to do. We want you to agree to work three nights a week. Okay, three nights a week, and we want you to work from you know five thirty until ten o'clock, and we want you to hear we want you to hear motions. Or, you know, you're going to hear, have what they call bench trials, which are, you know, where there's not a jury. This is an easy way to deal with the misdemeanors. If there's not a demand for a jury trial or something, if the trial's into a court and it's one of these things that's going to be a day-long trial or or a three- or four-hour trial or a day- or a two-day trial, just do it. Do it at night. Get it done. You've got to speed up the line. And for people who say, well, I don't think you'd be able to get people, well, we don't know because they're not trying to do that. You know, they're just, they're making no attempt to do that. And I think the reality would be if, for example, the chief judge would say, all right, we're running night court, and this is what we're going to do. And maybe we are even got some volunteers here. And, yes, we're asking some of our judges who are paid a lot of money and who have been kind of sitting on their butts during COVID, well, what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, we're going to ask them to, even if you don't want to bring in reserve judges, we're going to ask you to volunteer to do two month, two nights a week, um, 
five nights a month hearing hearing cases, you know, and, and they're going to be emotions or things like that, but we want to clear the decks to allow for the jury trials to, I mean, 177 people waiting for murder, for, to, for the trials to be heard on murder. Well, you, you've got to do that, but, but that doesn't mean, for example, that the person that's, I don't know, awaiting trial on the domestic violence or driving 95 miles an hour fleeing the cops doesn't mean that, that their case shouldn't be heard as well, and it also doesn't mean that they should be out on the street because the, the case can't be heard. So, I mean, I think that's kind of the bottom line of all this, and and it's the way the private sector would work. I mean, if you've got this incredible demand that you, you have to get through, you, you add people, you work overtime, you, you figure out ways to increase your ability to, you know, move the system along. But apparently in, in government, it's like, well, <clears throat> we, we can't do anything more. We're, we're just going to live with this. Well, the problem is when you live with it, you see what this has happened. And again, I, I'm not saying it's necessarily easy to do this, but at the same time, what ends up happening is the, the, just status quo isn't good enough. Status quo has put public safety in danger. And, and yeah, so maybe the public defenders aren't going to be like, aren't going to like this. And, and, and maybe that's, like I say, a thing to do with some of the COVID money that's floating around and say, okay, for temporarily, this, this is the deal. We're going to hire some more people to help move this along. We're going to pay people overtime or whatever. But our expectation is, we're we're not going to just accept this, and we're not going to continue to, I don't know, say because there's a backlog in jury trials, we're not going to deal with the backlog. We're just going to live with the status quo. I mean, you saw this play out with with the unemployment problem, you know, during the the, the, the start of the pandemic and the pathetic way that the Evers administration dealt with this. Remember, you had all these people that had filed unemployment claims and they weren't getting processed and they were told that it's going to be a year or whatever before your case is going to get heard. That was unacceptable. And so what they had to do was figure out ways to move things through the pipeline faster. This is the same sort of thing, and to me, Bring back night court. I, I think who starred in that? Marky Post. Um, you know, she was. Uh, I think the public defender. She was the prosecutor there. You know, bring, bring, bring back night court. Let's go to that. Let's move these cases along, and let's have these cases disposed of rather than having dangerous or potentially dangerous people out on the streets because you can't get to their cases. All right. When we come back, we're going to find out what John McCure has on his mind on Wisconsin's afternoon news.